Good morning, everyone. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Ben Gibbons. Uh, my wife, Michelle, and I have been members of the congregation for several years now. I just wanted to give you a little background before I dive into today's reading. Um, so prior to coming here, I had spent uh, 18 years as a parishioner of St. Francis of Assisi uh, Parish down in Victorian Village and spent 14 of those years as a lector, so getting up to proclaim the word not every Sunday, but many Sundays out of the year, including actually getting up to proclaim the word on Father's Day of 2017, which was basically my sending ceremony, our sending ceremony for that congregation before we started to become permanent full-time members of uh, CV. Um, so I'm just bringing that up to give you a little background. Um, so don't be surprised if you see or hear me do some things that you might, as friends said once, think of as uh, Catholic hand jive. Uh, during the course of a reading, it's just baked in. Um, that said, take a moment to uh, dwell, uh, relax, uh, enjoy a sip of coffee, get in a contemplative state, and I am going to dive into the reading for today. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, 
Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you so much, Ben. And I also just want to thank the Woods for just their faithfulness in doing Royal Family Kids and in connecting our church to just the beautiful work that they do there. Uh, I know that everyone who is touched by that work is, is just deeply moved by what God is doing there. So I just want to encourage folks to really, like, actually, can we give you guys a round of applause? First, just thank you. And I, would, <laughs> and I just want to encourage folks. Um, to lift them in prayer, and, and also to consider engaging with it. It's a wonderful thing. Okay, so today what I want to do is dig into attachment psychology theory in some depth, and then apply this to the reading of the passage and sort of teach through the passage from an attachment theory framework. And I, this can be difficult stuff in a, in a number of different ways, so I just want to give in all seriousness, a sort of trigger warning, because we're, we will be talking about family system stuff, church connection system stuff, um, things from your childhood. We, we will be talking about things that involve connecting maybe with your workplace and, and experiences in those places too. And uh, I'm going to also be a little bit nerdy for a second here, and if we could pull up sort of the core diagram that's going to be at the at the heart of this discussion. So I'm going to offer some sort of academic-y disclaimers, but the, the gist of it, and the real reason I'm doing this, is I want to encourage you to play with this, work with these ideas in ways that seem helpful to you, and take it with a grain of salt in some ways if, uh, if it seems like, oh, well, this doesn't really describe my experience or this doesn't really map because this is what I'm able to give you in a morning like this is just a really rough first sketch of some research that is uh, continued to be built on in all kinds of interesting ways. And uh, so we will approach it from a standpoint that if there is something you can draw from this and apply to your experience with God and church and family and work that really resonates and makes sense, that's great. And I'm not actually going to try to put people in a box. And as you dig into this, I think the more you realize that the boxes are also meant to be just taken uh, with a certain degree of looseness in how they can characterize our patterns. And so that can hopefully set you free to engage this in a way that is constructive. So this is drawing on um, some attachment work from the 90s. I had a version of this that Luis made like vastly prettier. There was like a standard 90s academic paper version of it. And this looks much better. So thank you, Luis, for uh, making this look better. Um, and so one way to look at this, and there's a, a variety of different attachment theories, but the framework that I'm gonna use here involves looking at, the, uh, if you're up high, you can sort of imagine being located on these axes. So on the top half, you have a high view of self. And this view of self can be formed uh, through very early childhood development, also through, in a church context, churches can cultivate a high view of self in relation to the church or a low view of self in relation to the church. One of the most famous, um, uh, I'm sorry, the left axis is view of self. So if you're way on the left side in that middle axis, um, you will have high view of self. And if you're all the way on the other side here, this reflects low view of self. And so, for example, Jonathan Edwards, who has heard like Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon? I studied it in, in high school. 
we read it. It's been hugely impactful on American spirituality, and it does not, in fact, represent all of Christianity. Although it does represent a type of Christianity a lot of us have been exposed to. And the idea here is something like, you are a worthless worm, you are scum, you are intrinsically so completely bad that God can only look at you with utter contempt. And you would be lucky if God just tortured you forever, because then you would be at least sustained in existence, and that's all you're good for. And uh, and so uh, so that, that's like low, lowest possible view of self, right? Um, a much higher view of self is reflected, for example, in the idea that uh, God made us in, in Genesis. God created people in God's own image, all of humanity. If you are part of humanity, you are made in God's image, and when God made humanity, God looked and said, very good. All of this other stuff is good, and God said, very good. So that's high view of self-theology. And we can, we can draw proof text from Scripture to sort of justify either. But I think if you follow the thread of Scripture, what you see is that that Genesis view, that high view of people, characterizes the narrative and the framework of Scripture. Now, having said that, we are very good, and we screw up. And we screw up monumentally. Right. And uh, we were, I was talking to some of the youth uh, about what can happen if we're told you are very good, which means you never do anything wrong. You're perfect, just the way you are. You're, you're perfect. And that can create what's sometimes called gifted child syndrome. The idea is, oh, now I have to pretend to be perfect all the time so that I can live up to all of this identity pressure that's been put on me. Right? And so I want to clarify that a high view of, of self, of who you are because God made you that way, does not mean we never screw up. In fact, it means you are loved unconditionally, and when you screw up, inevitably, um, God still loves you and is in a process of, of helping us learn and grow. And that framework helps us articulate and form what is often called a uh, secure attachment in the sense of our image of self. Um, and that provides a secure base for exploration, where you can have honest conversations, where you can learn and grow in community. So over here, though, on the high view of self, you can, so if, if you have a high view of self as well as a high view of the other, and the other here can be your family, the other here could be your spouse, the other here could be your church, the other here could be God. Let's just go with God, okay? So if you have a high view of self, I'm made in God's image, and then you also have a high view of God. I think God is actually good. In spite of all of the evil, all of the horror, everything we see, all of the challenges in this world, I will nonetheless say that God is good and has good designs and is working towards God's purposes. So high view of self, high view of other, that's also rooted in reality. That's the basis for what is called a secure attachment. And that can involve a secure attachment to God. And that spills over into how we attach to church. And so I'm going to read a little bit here about what um, this um, research says about secure attachment styles. And all of us, um, I, I uh, accept the approach that looks at this as sort of um, a, a uh, continuum. Okay, so I think all of us have at least some kinds of flashes of this. So the secure attachment prototype is characterized by a valuing of intimate friendships, the capacity to maintain close relationships without losing personal autonomy. And so I like the language of differentiated and connected. You're able to be differentiated and accept that other people have their own goals and, and perspectives and things, but that you're also able to stay in relationship. 
um, and a coherence and thoughtfulness in discussing relationships and other issues. And so part of what happens around some of this psychology is that when we experience intense threat, whether in our early childhood or later, part of how our body deals with identity threat, meaning being told that we're worthless or things like that, um, or actual physical threat, is we will sometimes uh, dissociate and depersonalize. And so we lose track of where we are, and it's protective. It's our body helping us cope and protect. But one of the costs of that can be that we also lose track of what's actually happening. We can't actually narrate what happened in a coherent way. And so secure and stable attachments build relationships more deeply because we are able to stay in touch with ourselves and our bodies and each other and what's happening. So, but what if you have a really high view of self for any number of reasons, which is, I, I believe, a good thing. It's a basis of stable and secure attachment. Um, but you end up with a very negative view of God or a negative view of the church or a negative view of your family system. Um, what that tends to produce is something called a dismissing response or a dismissing prototype. So the dismissing prototype is characterized by a downplaying of the importance of close relationships, restricted emotionality, an emphasis on independence and self-reliance, and a lack of clarity or credibility in discussing relationships because we sort of cope with the brokenness of the relationship through um, uh, trying to not pay attention to that. I'm going to turn my attention towards something that is that is at least healthier. And so I, I want to be very clear in all of this. All of us participate in all of this to some degree, and no one should be stigmatized based on their postures here. But it can be helpful to sort of just notice this stuff, to dig this stuff up, to talk about this stuff. And so part of a dismissing approach can be a perfectly understandable coping mechanism, right? If you are in a system, a family system or a church system or whatever, that is routinely harmful and abusive, you will develop a, but you will hopefully, in some sense, develop a warranted low view of that other. And so what will you do? You, well, you'll, you'll maybe ghost, right, to protect yourself. Um, I know that in my own relationship with my brother, I have adopted dismissing strategies in response to very painful things in our lives, right? And so um, these can both be a basic style that sort of feels natural and feels like home base for us, but they can also be a strategy that we adopt in some particular case. And so in a sense, the underlying thing here, and this is why this is, this is a normative framework, meaning there's actually one of these that basically people agree is better, and it's the stable, secure attachment. It's better for health outcomes. It's better just how, for how we feel day to day. Like, so you actually, like, insofar as it's up to you, and it's not always up to you, insofar as it's up to you as a human being, as an image bearer of God, you are made to live in cell one. And so when we find that we're in situations where we end up down there in cell four in the lower left corner, and that's the best we can cope, um, it's painful. It's, it's not great. And so, uh, and sometimes we just have to cope. Sometimes in this life we just have to cope. But I, I think that there is a level of, of devastation in our ability to connect with ourselves and each other in the universe uh, and with God that comes if we develop a, a negative view of God. There, there, there's a devastation that that can cause that I believe God and that the Holy Spirit is always working to repair. Okay, so that is the dismissing attachment style. Now this other one might be even harder in some sense to talk about in church. Uh, so cell two 
Sometimes called preactive, pre preoccupied attachment, also uh, anxious attachment. So this is like the opposite. And in some sense, it's, I find it very easy in my mind in interacting with a group to go between cell four and cell two. So <clears throat> imagine you're flipping from, I'm okay, but I have to preserve myself from this bad thing, to I'm terrible, I'm worthless, but this other thing is basically like uh, impossible to critique. For example, an abusive church system. Okay. Um, what does that produce? Well, it produces people who, because we are connectors, like, we are made in the image of God, we are made to connect, we are made to be priests that bind and unite and mediate between things. Because we are image bearers of God in a preoccupied, anxious system, we will, a lot of people, will try very, very hard to appease an unappeasable God figure. And so, and this is really what I believe Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, he is architecting an anxious attachment system. That's what he's doing. He's theologically architecting a system where you are worthless and terrible and you have nothing to bring to the table, but God is perfect and you cannot critique God. And by that, I mean you cannot critique me because I'm basically God here. That's what happens, right? And here's the hard thing. That, like, kind of works. Like, people will show up. People will do stuff. People will, like, you know, like, uh, do all kinds of things to try to appease you if you decide and can structure and manipulate people into being part of a preoccupied attachment system. It's not great for people in general. We don't really thrive. There's a lot of coping involved in this um, instead of thriving. But you might get some good numbers for a period of time that way. And if you're trying to transition out of that sort of approach, it's very easy to make this meaning of it. Oh, hold on. They got it all backwards. They had a high view of God that they were using to get me into that system, and a low view of me that they were using. I've got to reverse the polarities. No, I'm good, and God, and all these people who are pretending to talk for God are bad. And you go from cell two to cell four, right? You move into a dismissing mode. Does that make sense? It's hard to say this in church, right? <laughs> but I find it also very helpful, because it helps me understand a lot of how I, in my own life, have tried to cope with these challenges in church, uh, and, and something that I think happens to a lot of us. And it's liberating to sort of see it laid out there. And part of the value of this sort of thing is that it normalizes this. That when those things are happening, this is just normal humans with normal human psychology and, and theologically being image bearers of God coming into and trying to deal with complicated and messy systems. Whew, that was a lot. I'm going to stop for a second and pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for... The chance to share these things, thank you for whatever you're stirring up in our hearts and our minds as we discuss this. Please continue to abide with us and guide us as we continue the conversation. And so the last one, so one other thing I want to note about preoccupied attachment systems, and in this sort of famous study, they, they didn't really predict that it would be a high domination type system. The people who have a preoccupied attachment style would tend to be very dominating and very warm. Okay. But that is actually what it produced. Even more so than a stable attachment system, you have an environment that is, in a sense, hyper-warm and hyper-dominating. 
Um, and I, I know that that resonates. I've, I've had experiences like that. It's like it's a very warm and welcoming environment, and yet it's also, as it turns out, an extremely controlling environment. And so I think the challenge, I think that the work of God, I think that the work of the Holy Spirit, the work through Jesus, and the work that Scripture is actually doing once we start to look at this, is that for those of us, and that part of us, that has a low view of self and a high view of other, I think God wants to help us sustain and deepen that high view of the other being God, while also developing appropriate, a theologically appropriate high view of self. I think God wants to move us that way. And I think that for those of us who are in a more dismissing mode, and, and in that mode at times, I think that what God wants to do is um, maintain that high view of self, and deepen it and enrich it and maybe also make it clear that that high view of self does not depend on thinking we are flawless, but that that high view of self fundamentally depends on knowing that we are fundamentally loved by the creator of the universe and carry us to a place where we also are able to develop a um, warranted high view of God and of churches and communities insofar as they are able to reflect the goodness of God in our limited and broken ways. And I know for myself, this is so clarifying, because I think about my own history with this church over the last, like, 15 years, where when I was discerning vocations of Franciscan Friar and doing that, I also, being raised in America, internalized some real worm theology. And so I really, really lived in that cell, too. I also was, like, a really good student, and school, our school systems also depend on anxious attachment, right? You are constantly being graded and evaluated and told that you're worthless and that the school has this, like, enormous authority over you. At least this is how I encountered it. And so, like, my life was sell too, right? up through college. One of the most healing things that ever happened to me was I got a B- minus in a class, and I realized that the world didn't end, right? It was like, oh, this is going to help me work through some of my extreme anxiety in relationship to authority systems. And I know, we have, you know, we're at a campus church. We have lots of folks here who have PhDs and things like that. Like, I have seen the actual trauma caused by going through that academic system. Like, it's real. Okay, so there are a lot of anxious attachment systems in our society. And, um, and because I did not want to help my church be an anxious attachment system, because I was healing from anxious attachment, um, I sometimes it was so, trying so hard to not be that that I ended up acting like I was a self or person. And in my heart, I wasn't dismissive, but I was so afraid of, of triggering someone else to feel like I was in, like invoking anxious attachment. I didn't know how to do this other thing. Um, people would feel dismissed. And it, it's, it's taken me years of realizing that actually people have encountered me in church over these years, trying to avoid my cell two behavior, and have felt like I'm doing a cell four thing because I'm trying so hard to not be cell two. I'm just trying to do the opposite of that, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I want to apologize to anybody here who has ever felt dismissed by me over all of the time here, uh, especially during the time when I was, I was really trying to sort that out. And uh, thank God, because this, like Adrian and Jeff, you guys have cultivated a place where I feel like the Holy Spirit has been able to work with me over the many years it has taken to, to realize that I don't have to live in cell two, and I don't have to live in cell four because I'm avoiding cell two, but that we can actually like increasingly live in cell one. And that doesn't mean we'll do it all the time perfectly but it means that we have a roadmap for what I think God is doing and what God wants for people. So, 
Thank you for listening to all of that. And now I'm going to read uh, through our passage for today and apply some of these attachment insights and, and just note some of the different ways we might hear the passage based on the attachment framework we're bringing to it. So when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And so you might just hear that and feel actually that Jesus is being... Um, actually, if we can just keep the chart up, that would probably be the best. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we might think that Jesus is actually uh, engaging in an avoidant, dismissive, self-for kind of approach, right? He's just... Um, but, but what you see here is that he's not, and that in everything he's doing, he is first preserving himself. It's, it's appropriate to withdraw from dangerous situations, and Jesus had reason to be concerned he might get killed. So it's okay to withdraw, but his heart is at least oriented towards the possibility of reconciliation. Now, having said that, in this life, there will be people who are not reconciled to us. Okay? That doesn't mean it's our job to fix every broken situation in this life. But um, here, I think there's something important about Jesus' heart, which is continued, it continually oriented towards blessing and reconnection. So leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, and to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, so he's reaching out to Gentile communities. He is walking through this process of attaching and having a new natality, a new baptismal natality that connects people of all nations by the way of the sea. People living in darkness, like the chaos darkness that we were talking about, seeing light. And from a secure attachment standpoint, what we can see here is a high view of these others, even in, even in their problems, even in their brokenness, even in the violence that they were bringing to Jesus' own people, seeing a, a, a high view of them that's also able to acknowledge problems, that he's not giving them gifted child syndrome, and a high view of himself and his own value in preserving himself too at least long enough to do the work he had to do. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, okay, I, I know throughout most of my life, I have, because I've lived in cell two, I've heard this in a cell two way, right? When Jesus says repent, is he trying to say, I am fundamentally worthless and terrible, but he is, the, uh, he is awesome, and so I need to be extremely anxious. I don't think so. I think he's saying, I care enough about you, and I care enough about your learning and your growth to connect with you and invite you into a process of transformation. That's what secure attachment Jesus sounds like, I think. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, from my dismissive standpoint, I might very easily say, well, people aren't fish. This is very degrading to human beings, and I know that I'm better than a fish. So screw you, Jesus. Get it together, man. Oh, right? Yeah, okay. I read the Bible with a hermeneutic of suspicion a lot. I, I, <laughs> um, and there's something, you know, I, there's a time and a place for that. But perhaps... 
what Jesus is actually doing is, is honoring them in their profession and honoring them where they're at. And will also liken himself to a fish. Fish are remarkable creatures. Fish are things that can thrive in water, even in the chaos that they're living in. And it can be invited out and up into the life that God has for us. Oh, we can read that in a secure attachment way as well. I recommend that way. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Jeb Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So they left their father. And this reminds me of a conversation I had with my mom in the last year as she's been dealing with some serious health issues and is really thinking about where to be and how to connect with her kids. We, we adore her, and we have family that's spread out over the Midwest. But she was sharing a really deep and heartfelt frustration, which is, like, we gave you kids so much. We loved you. We cared for you. And me and my friend Jan, like, we, we poured into our kids. And now you guys are out, and you have your own lives, and you're thriving. And meanwhile, I know folks who stayed back in South Dakota who were just terrible to their kids, who would never give them a moment of approval, just made them feel worthless all the time. And those kids have stuck around with them and are there at their deathbeds seeking the approval that they never got. What's she describing? She's describing cell two. She's describing what preoccupied attachment will get you, right? And through that conversation that we were able to reflect on that, and, and she, you know, on deeper reflection, I mean, there is something kind of unfair about that, right? You can't manipulate people into doing stuff for you, and I, I, I guess feels nice for some people. I don't know, right? You can get, at least you can get something out of people that way. But what she, but it's terrible, right? Like, there's just a rottenness in that. And what my mom came to on deeper reflection and through conversation and me applying some of these sorts of ideas was like, no, I'm actually glad. <laughs> I've raised you to thrive, and I know that you connect with me, and I know that if I ever need you, you're there. Right? But, you, but, but I actually don't regret that you're not desperately seeking approval that will never come. Right? Um, and for those families that are like that, I just want to speak a word of grace and hope and love that God loves your family too. And God loves you, and God sees the pain, and God is working to restore connection and bring more secure attachment. So, these sons left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. From an anxious attachment standpoint, I might say, well, Jesus is like screwing up this family system, right? They should be sitting there endlessly seeking their father's approval. But I like to imagine that their father raised them in a loving way and that they were securely attached enough. They had a secure base for exploration. That when they encountered the goodness and the love of Jesus, they were able to respond and follow him and go their own way. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, the suffering, severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, all over the place anybody who could get there. Then this passage leads into what I call the Covenant on the Mount. It's usually called the Sermon on the Mount, but it follows just the pure covenant formula, which means 
this is how to live to find life and blessing. And if you do the opposite, it will be self-destructive and hurt you. But why I really wanted to spend time on this and meditate on this before we get into the Covenant on the Mount is because it is very easy to encounter and to hear the Covenant on the Mount from a preoccupied and or a dismissive, and I didn't get into it much, or a, or a fearful mode. I think this is, and, and then we try to vacillate between this anxious way of reading it to this dismissive way of reading it. A lot of the history of interpretation can make sense in that way. And so I think it's super important that Jesus doesn't come and say, here's all this stuff you've got to do and then I'll help you. He comes and is just blessing people. He's showing that he cares about them. He's showing them love. He's showing them concern. He's showing them his power. Because that's how you form secure attachment. Is just through unconditional love. If any of us are blessed with some measure of secure attachment in this messed up world, it's probably because at the very start, someone held you and cuddled you, maybe nursed you, and was just there for you like a whole lot through probably years of sleep deprivation, as some of us know, right? Um, and, uh, and that work of uh, attachment, if you are alive, you got some measure of that. Because people who don't get any of that, like infants that don't get any of that, like, they die. They, they literally die. So the fact that you are alive and talking to me tells me you got at least some of that. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so grateful for that, and I'm grateful for that for you. Um, and so as we get ready to dig into the Covenant on the Mount and sort of think about this bigger theme of remembering, I also want to invite us to think about attaching through Jesus and through his way of love, of care for the poor and the marginalized and for all who suffer, uh, and the work of reconciliation, which involves being able to correct our own mistakes, which is rooted in being in a secure enough relationship where you know that you are loved and you can, you can do that work. And you can be vulnerable because underneath that vulnerability, there's a deeper safety that lets you explore and learn and grow. So I would love to, before we move into communion, actually, um, I would love to open up for the open mic and then I will move into communion. So if anyone has anything that they want to share, please feel free to. Uh, if there's something where you, like, don't want to, this isn't, like, there's nothing performative. There's no performative expectation here. So if nobody comes up and shares anything, that's also totally fine. And uh, I do want to create the space, though, because often people's hearts will move or the Holy Spirit will move on them and there will be something that they want to share. So we'll do about five minutes of the mic is open. Um, come, Holy Spirit, please guide us in this time. Good morning, my name is Kimberly Boyne. Right here is Stephen Boyne, my hero, my husband. He's wish him a happy birthday. His birthday's Tuesday. So I have been a vocalist since I was born, 63 years ago. And God laid on my heart last night one of my favorite anthem songs. I've sung it in Hershey, I've sung it in Pittsburgh. And the way God uses the gift of prophecy is that for me he brings to mind the word or song and it matches exactly the message without any consultation whatsoever and that's what's happened this morning but before i say that <laughs> a little public service announcement if any of you are interested in a children's choir here for your children starting in the fall when school starts again sometime during the week, during Bible study or whatever, please express your interest to anyone that's on the worship team. 
and we'll see if we have the interest because I would be delighted to do something I've been doing for 50 years. The song is called Blessings. It's about sleepless nights. I am qualified. I've spent many sleepless nights in a mental institution and I understand John very, very well. This was written in about the year 2000. Laura's story, it's also been covered by Lauren Daigle. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. For prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while you hear each spoken need. Love us way too much to give us lesser things. Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. And what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know the pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home, not our home. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? And what if trials of this life the rain, the storms, the hottest nights, are your mercies in disguise. And I'm definitely praying, our team is praying for any of you awaiting testing, feeling suicidal, trapped or homeless. We're here for you.
love you so much, Emily. Thank you. And so, I think I'll just do a very simple communion liturgy. Also, there will be our prayer team at the side, so if anybody would like to receive prayer as part of communion, that is also a core part of what we do here. So, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we continue to do this until he returns in glory, welcoming him to dawn in our hearts more and more deeply as he abides with us and in us and through us. So please come. You're welcome to communion. You're welcome to receive prayer.